Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Wednesday, April 26th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that page and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why is this happening to me again? And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using for over 18 years to great effect to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. You can click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also download a whole host of audio files of shows just like this one where people have been stepped through that worksheet process. And if you choose to listen to those, they can serve as a tutorial for you, help you get maximum benefits from the use of these tools in uh, the shortest period of time possible. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that, Before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app. That app contains the Reality Management Worksheet, contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. 
And we help people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate it if you would do so by calling 563-999-3581. Once you call that number, if you press 1 on your phone, it will put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. And we appreciate whenever people choose to do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be a service. And if you would let us know how we can be a service to you, that just makes it far easier for us to accomplish that goal. I... Um, let's see... I think I mentioned yesterday that the podcast had published the second interview I had done with Laura McGowan of her her second book, Push Off From Here. And um, I, I'm, I'm trying to put together, yes, so last night was a uh, support group. And in the support group, we actually watched the video of that interview. Sometimes people um, uh, aren't made aware of the fact that these interviews, when they're published on Journey's Dream, they're published on that website as a podcast and also with a transcript of whatever said. It's also available through whatever venue you get your podcast, whether that's Apple Podcasts or the Google App Store or whatever. And it's also posted on YouTube as a video because I do a Zoom interview. And I think there's only been one, maybe two interviewees who requested not to be videoed. And so out of the 128 video or interviews I've done, only two of them don't have a video to go along with it. But if you wanted to watch the actual YouTube interview or the video, you can go to YouTube and type in Journey's Dream and then search for you know either my name or the name of the interviewee. Or you can just go to your app store and listen to the podcast as an audio file. Or you can go right to journeysdream.org and listen to it right there. There is a a dearth of uh, promotion work being done for this, so it's rather um, relying on word of mouth only. So if you listen to a podcast like that or you hear me talk about one and it's of interest to you, you could do us a big favor by passing that word along to other people or posting it on your Facebook page or whatever other social media you use because there simply isn't a budget for promoting this anymore. Um, what monies they do have in this not-for-profit are going to other projects. And so you could assist us by promoting the interviews that you like. And I think there are two very good interviews with Laura McGowan. There was a very, very 
there have been a series of interviews that were, to my eye and ear, quite useful. Along with that, just about four years ago now, when I launched the second hour of the Mind Shifters Radio, and I created the website mindshiftersacademy.org to try and help increase promotion of Michael and Jeannie's work. I also began recruiting people to be interviewed on the Mind Shifters radio show. And one of the more, well, two, the two biggest ones of note were Guy Finley and Pierre Prattervand. And I got lucky because both of them had, right before I interviewed them, they had published a new book. And when people publish a new book, they're kind of hungry for exposure. And even though the podcast was in its infancy and didn't have very many followers and didn't have a big numbers base to entice these world-class authors, they agreed to be interviewed. And we did that on Mindshifters Radio. And now the Journey's Dream podcast has begun since that time. It's only about three and a half years. And that is a professionally produced podcast with logos and you know all the links people would need to promote it on their social media. And so now when I invite somebody to be interviewed, I don't do it live on the Mind Shifters radio show. I do it on a Zoom call, and then it gets professionally produced. And then it's out there, and I try to promote it on this podcast or this Internet show as well. And this morning I was thrilled to receive an email from Pierre Prattervan's assistant letting me know that in July he's going to release a new book and he wants to know if I'm interested in interviewing him. And I typed back fast and furiously, yes, anytime, any day, morning or night, just let me know. And then she was kind enough to send me the preview PDF file of the book. And I began reading it this morning as I was typing to her. And so to my eye and ear, that's very exciting news. Um, The new book, I'm trying to pull it up here, is titled The Gentle Art of Spiritual Discernment, subtitled A Guide to Discovering Your Personal Path. And uh, as soon as that interview gets scheduled and is available, I will let people know. But you can, if you're so inclined, you can actually pre-order the book the Gentle Art of Spiritual Discernment by Pierre Prattervand. And again, it's going to release uh, or be available sometime in July. The other announcement I wanted to make is that um, this Saturday, April 29th, 
at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, Dale Allen Hoffman is going to be doing a, an online live Zoom event. And they're asking for $33 for um, registration. And everybody who does that will get the full HD video and audio playback, plus lots of cool PDF downloads and more. So whether you can be there live this Saturday, April 29th, or not, if you go to his website and register for this and drop in the payment information, you'll get access to this. And... Um, What he's titling it is um, Ancient Aramaic Secrets of Magdalene, Mary Magdalene. And uh, so if you have any difficulty finding that through um, DaleAllenHoffman.com or... Um, The actual website, um, I'm, I'm having difficulty pulling it up on my phone, but it, if you go to DaleAllenHoffman.com, I'm sure they have a promo on their opening page, and it's for this Saturday, the 29th, and um, enjoy. I mean, I have uh, participated in a number of these. Uh, I've interviewed him about his book, Echoes of an Ancient Dream. I've had him come to Woodstock, Illinois, to be a, a keynote speaker for our Tuesday support group and um, to give um, a workshop and to do the uh, sermon at that Unity Church years ago. I think it was 2015. So those are all the announcements, and we have plenty of time for comments, questions, reactions to yesterday's discussion with Magda and or Susan. Um, how can we support you? The second hour today will be from uh, Michael and Jeannie, a recording. So, area code 541, is this Celinda? Yes, it is. Can you hear Welcome. me all right? Yes, so far, so good. Oh, perfect. Uh, yes, I was. I had my hand raised yesterday, but I w wanted, I'm glad that you didn't pick up on me because I wanted to hear the rest of your conversation with Susan. <laughs> uh, it was a really eye-opening. I've had a... Okay. Several things just popped my eyes wide open for something I didn't realize the significance of. <clears throat> Once a few, oh, a couple months ago, I was looking at an ARP newsletter, and they had an article on ADHD. And I have had uh, many situations where I felt like I was ADD, 
especially because my daughter had learning disabilities. And when I went to deal with her learning disabilities, I said, oh, my God, that's me. <laughs> but uh, they talk about the many symptoms of adult ADHD, and there were only two uh, that I didn't have out of the 16. And so that was an eye opener. So, so you, had, you, you found out that you had to work harder to get the full diagnosis? <laughs> really, really? No, I'm, 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 I go within now, Dr. Tim. I don't even go to the doctor anymore because I've had so many experiences with um, the regular medicine that I just don't even go. And I found more answers for myself, by myself, by asking and going within and just noticing what comes under my nose. Um, and then when you were talking to uh, Magda and you were saying, oh, it's all in the interpretation. Everything is in the interpretation. All events are neutral. That had gone through my head so many times. But it was like yesterday. It was flashing with neon lights. And I, uh, I feel like I got it on a deeper level. The other thing that I was thinking about was that I think I'll pause because the direction I was going in, I seem to have lost my way. So if you have any comments, that would be helpful. It's just a well, an eye opener. So the discussion was an eye opener for you by talking about oh, how yeah. each of us create our own triggers. We're never triggered by the outside situation, oh, yeah. event, or actions of other people? I thought, well, I, had uh, it with, I, can... I thought I had it between my ears, and I probably did, but it hadn't gone any deeper until yesterday. Well, all I can say about that is that it has clearly taken my work to the next level to realize that. When, once upon a time, way back when, had to be over you know, somewhere within the past 12 years, when we were doing this Internet show and there were more people in the community that were going to the Heartland experience and there were people like Julie Haverstick who would, she would be described by Dr. Michael Rice as somebody who has done more worksheets than even Dr. Michael Rice. And whether it was Julie Haverstick or somebody else, somebody decided that as they were doing the worksheet, and the worksheet the way it was laid out, would say, you know, um, I'm doing this worksheet on my trigger. And this person realized that in truth, they were always the source of their upset. And so they changed it. So every trigger was them. And that provided a lot of good discussion and people reframing the, the, the template of thought that they use for this process. And eventually it morphed and Michael blended that into the worksheet a little bit. He didn't go all the way the way they did, but so now the worksheet starts out focusing on me. I, Tim, who am love, 
am experiencing this emotion. So it used to be, you know, so-and-so did this and I'm upset at them, etc. And so when I realized at this whatever level I had this download about, I think it was probably when Michael was talking about something, and I realized that's not how it works for me because he was talking about you trigger me and I trigger you and this thing triggered so-and-so. And the first level of awareness that we worked through was that I and other people were using that phrase, you triggered me, basically as another way to say, you caused my upset. And so it was a very important shift in perspective to get people to redefine. Because what was intended when Michael came up with that phrase and started using it in his work was to take ownership within himself for his upset. And Mm -hmm. yet, just as with all, all these great spiritual teachers, as they come up with a phrase or a template for thinking about something, those of us who are working with those concepts, I won't call us followers, but those of us who are working with those concepts can and often do change the meaning and find a way to bend it or twist it or turn it so that we come back to a position where we're not taking full responsibility for creating our own experience. And that's how, you know, that evolved and and I realized, oh my gosh, it isn't even accurate to say that what you did brought up this emotion in me. Because that, you know, and that's the way Michael still talks about it. That's how he talks about it in the uh, communication. Did you hear what I think I said? Lecture and the um, corollary worksheet called um, the responsibility communication tool. And that would be the exact phrase Michael would use. He would say, here's what happened as I see it, I walked into this room and you were sitting over there and then this noise happened and then you said the words, you scaring me and whatever. And when that happened, so-and-so, whoever I'm talking to, when you did that, it brought up a lot of my anger. And I had the insight, I had the realization that Michael may not mean that occasion that somebody else is causing my upset, but my mind clearly makes it mean that. And and then I had somebody else observe, hey, you know what? How many times has this situation happened where you didn't get upset at all or you didn't get as upset? Or if one person does it, that doesn't bother you, but if another person does it, you get all agitated And I started to realize the difference between these various episodes or situations or experience in my life is the interpretation that I choose and place on the event. It's not the outside event. It's not that person's behavior that triggers me, et cetera. So I just encourage you to play at this, play with it for yourself. Um, It's very much like what, 
I've I've read just so far in the beginning of Pierre Pradervan's new book. Um, um, I'm not here to tell you about your spirituality or about your path. The idea is how can you discern for yourself what your personal path is because his title of the book is The Gentle Art of Spiritual Discernment, A Guide to Discovering Not the truth or the personal path, but a guide to discovering your personal path. And so it may not fit for you to say um, the choice of my interpretation is what's stirring this up for me. It might fit better for you to say it the way Michael Rice does, that when you did this thing or that thing, it brought up this in me. I just offer it as another possibility for people to play around with and explore for themselves. And this is exactly the confirmation I've been looking for all along. The 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 links that you offered yesterday just it, they were just there, you know. I got them for me and they like I said, "Yes, this is what I've been feeling." basically most of my life and <clears throat> what I, I when I was when we were in um, the next county over the mountain <laughs> on the north side of the mountains uh, 30 years ago there was an extension agent who has since become a good friend of ours um, and uh, he's 80 or something now and he came out to see something in my garden one time and we were talking he said you know we all say the same words and speak a different language and I never forgot that and it was like what you said yesterday I got it in spades it was like everything is my interpretation it's exactly what you said about Julie Julie Haverstick or whoever it was um, it's it's all about me, and if I'm using you, I am immediately blaming the other person. You, you. It doesn't matter how else I language it. I am saying basically, if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't be triggered. Exactly. And and exactly. And so just, whether I say whether I say you triggered me or you brought this up in me, my mind benefits from this extra clarity of saying my interpretation of this situation is resonating this upset in me. And this helps me take more full ownership of the dynamic. And my husband and I have been having uh, disagreements ever since we were married about what a word means. And I was trying to say, but that's not what the word means to me. I really don't care what the collective means in relation to this point that I'm trying to share with you. This is what this word means to me. And I did the same thing in reverse. <clears throat> so this is all pulled together, all of this. Every single, it's, I think, one of the first times that I've suddenly not even suddenly, gradually began to see 
that everything is absolutely perfect as it is. Now, if I can get my body to follow along, my heart to follow along, that would be great. Um, But that everything is neutral. It is neutral. It's my spin on it. And I'm also so grateful now. I'm finding I'm getting more and more grateful for the parents I had and the families I came into because this is a hard one. I had one parent whose family was into the truth with a capital T and the other family whose family was in for the, with, for freedom with a capital F and um, the, the difference between the two um, the one that was in for freedom were very violent with each other. The one that was in for truth was a capital T were very gentle with each other, but not nearly as explorative. And and now I'm saying, oh, my God, what a blessing. What a blessing that I, I came into that. And it just, everything seems to be called, not everything. I mean, just one little piece of my universe seems to be coalescing very nicely now if I can if I'm I be if I be willing if I have a willing body and a gentle heart and an open mind um, uh, I'm really grateful for everything for everything and especially for this radio show and for you your perspective and Michael's perspective and and I'm just very grateful and feel like I can move forward and deal with my healing crisis of my Pandora's box, I'm in my cup of hostility at the moment, <laughs> so I'm crawling out of that one, and so um seeing what it's all about, well, and I think it's great. I had a, um, I'm, I'm not sure I might uh, be repeating myself here on the show, but I had a download, I think it was Friday, in some kind of an interaction of the show, that um, somebody was saying, which maybe you or somebody else was saying, um, pray for me that everything works out for my highest and best. And and I really don't know where this was from. It might have been from a patient. It might have been in the support group interaction. But anyway, I had this download. The last time I heard that from somebody, and the download was, that would be a waste of your prayer. That would be like somebody sitting in front of me on the love seat in my office and asking me to pray for them to have a place to sit in my office. Right. Pray for what is already happening is the essential message. So the download I got was, you know, the fact of the matter is everything is already happening for our highest and best even when and probably especially when we don't see it. So if I want to use prayer, what I might pray for is my ability or the other person's ability to see how everything is always working out for the highest and best. It's already happening. 
we can't see it. We don't want it to be the way it is. But it's like this exercise that Michael Rice did one of the first times I brought him into uh, the Crystal Lake, Fox River Grove area. And he had an audience, probably 60 or 70 people in this small room, shoulder to shoulder. And uh, he said, I'd like to have everybody in the room think about some of the worst of the worst things that have happened to you in your life. And there was groans through the room. He said, don't worry, we're not going to do true confessions or whatever. But then he said, now, raise your hand when you've got one, okay? And I'll put your hands back down. And he said, now, think about one of those that happened at least five years ago. And people did. And he said, now, raise your hand if you can see how that thing that you labeled as catastrophic or terrible or horrible or you wouldn't want it to happen to your worst enemy, how that event, that unfolding, has led to, directly or indirectly, led to some of the best things in your life today. And every hand in that audience went up, including mine, and it shocked me. But if that's the case, if even these things that I have to get dragged kicking and screaming through these events. I hate them. They're painful. They aren't what I think they should be. They don't seem loving, etc. Even those situations result in some of the best things in my life. Well, what if it's already always happening for my highest and best, and the only thing that's missing is my ability to see that. Since that download on Friday, I've decided I will no longer pray for the highest and best outcome for myself or somebody else. I will start praying for my ability to see how whatever happens is already perfect, like Byron Katie would say. How do you know if something's perfect? If it's already happened, it was perfect. My suffering from what already happened and my adding suffering to the pain or discomfort or the need to make adjustments in my life to accommodate something that I don't like, my suffering from it is created by my believing my negative thoughts about it, especially when it's in the past because I can't go back and change it. And that's just an offering. I might be repeating myself. I might have said that already on the air. I don't know. But that was a download that I had Friday. I think it was during the show. And it relates to what you were just saying, that my experience has been I've had many experiences that I did not like. I thought they were horrible and catastrophic and tragic. And yet, as I sit here today, I can see how almost every one of them has led to some of the best things in my life today. And you might have heard me say this. I talked about this. I actually did quite a bit of public speaking, and I led a group with it. And I was doing one of these presentations, and I said, now, with the possible exception of the death of a child, 
you know, because I'm not trying to tell people, hey, buck up, it's all for your best, and your your child just died of cancer or of suicide. Or so I made that disclaimer as I was giving this talk because I was talking about 30 people, maybe 35 people. It's hard to know what people have been through. At the end of that talk, two people, a husband and wife team, came up to me and they said, we want you to know that even the death of a child, and they were there to talk about how their son in his early 20s committed suicide and they decided to try and mobilize their resources and network with other people and raise awareness for suicide. And they said, we've met some of the most remarkable people and other young people in their 20s that have connected with us and now consider us their parents, et cetera, and none of that would have happened if our son hadn't taken his life. Now, I'm not saying that you should do that. I'm just saying if anybody can do that, then everybody can do that if they so choose. Well, I really thank you for that because, no, I hadn't heard that about um, praying for it sparks within me a memory of something I read in Greg Braden or listened to a CD and he had a Nav- he has a Navajo friend <clears throat> in northern New Mexico and he went the Navajos they were having a conversation over lunch and Greg Braden said well something about well pray for and the Navajo looked at him and said, we Navajos never pray for anything. He said, if we pray for something, that means we lack it. And um, it'll stop, it'll keep us stuck right where we are. This is how we pray. And Greg Braden said, I don't understand. He said, okay, I'll show you. So he takes Greg Braden and they walk out in the desert in the, um, a long way. And he doesn't even know where he's going with his friend. And they come to a very sacred place of the Navajo people. And he said, okay, now, I am, they, by the way, New Mexico was in a really big drought at that time. And um, he said, now I'm going to go pray, for, pray rain. And he said, what? He said, he said I'm going to go pray rain. And Greg said, oh, okay. <laughs> So the guy walks over to this uh, sacred rock or whatever it is, cliff or whatever, I mean rock face, and he stands there, takes off his shoes, and he uh, stands there barefooted, and he's silent, oh, for several minutes, and then he goes back, he says, okay, I'm done, let's go. And Greg says, but you didn't pray anything. And he said, oh, yes, I did. And Greg said, but, but I didn't hear anything come out of your mouth. And he said, oh. He said, well, I prayed envisioning rain. He said, I prayed it with my whole body. I felt the mud squishing under my toes. I envisioned the smell of the rain as it came, um, which is a famous saying of people in the Southwest, the desert smells like rain because you never know if it's going to come or not. And then he said, and then I envisioned the rain on my body and uh, soaking the ground. We're, we're done. Let's go. 
And so they went and they left. And that night, they had one of the hugest storms they'd ever had. And like Greg Braden said, was that the result of the prey rain that my friend did? Or was it circumstantial? I have no way of knowing. But apparently the Navajos have even been uh, invited by people like in Africa, indigenous groups in Africa, to go pray rain for them when they were in serious drought. And every time, at least the one reference that Greg Braden gave, when the shamans went over to pray rain, they got it. And so I thought I'd share that with you. For me, that meant it was the raining vision, the raining principles of the creator herself, his himself, itself. And so I'm making all of these little spark, sparking links between what I have, gems I've discovered in the past and thought I understood, but realized they're a mystery. I'll never understand the fullness of them. And that doesn't matter because I'm not supposed to. But I just keep putting one foot in front of the other and I'm doing my best to learn to love myself, to be loved towards myself, to see and feel. And I'm not there yet. I don't feel. Feeling is very hard for me in some areas, but I'm asking to be shown. And uh, I just think you're all a blessing, and I'm a blessing, and I'm just excited about the way we're helping each other. I love it. All right. Well, I'm glad that you're finding it useful. And I would just point out that the the concept of praying rain is um, it's a powerful one. There's a lot of good talks by Greg Braden about that, and um, you described it beautifully. And that's significantly different to my eye and ear of what the download I had on Friday, which is if I were in the drought in New Mexico or wherever I was, the download I had on Friday translated into that would be, let me pray for the ability to see how whatever this weather is, whether it stays dry or it rains, is going to be the perfect thing. It's going to be a blessing. It's going to lead me to learn and grow and do things. It's another opportunity for me to extend love in a situation that I find difficult and thereby strengthen my capacity to extend love in various situations, that would be in in line with the download I had on Friday. Yeah, and that's the perfect link to Pierre Pratervan, I think, for me. And uh, Greg Braden also has a, a CD on the the prayer of blessing that he feels has been lost from our repertoire of yeah, prayer. Yeah, that, that, that idea about the Navajo it, is right in line with the Pierre Prater rant. Don't focus on what your senses are showing you. Focus on the perfect image of the other person or the situation and extend that loving energy from your heart space through that image toward the other person. That's, to my mind and I, that's the same as praying rain. And isn't that our creative ability? Yeah. Yes. 
feeling the feeling mud the squishing mud. between my toes, feeling the rain hit my skin, smell it, right? Feel the gratitude coming up for the moisture and what it's going to bring in the crops and how it's going to, you know, nourish the humans and the animals. Feeling that, let the feeling state move through me, even though my senses might be showing me something else. Right, and that's my biggest challenge at the moment. <laughs> and I'm 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 work I'm practicing and preparing for that. I'm really excited, and uh, it'll come when it comes. And it's already here. I just don't see it yet. That's what your message is telling me. The ground being, Doctor Tim. The Amen. I love it. It's our co it's our co creative ability. It's our part in the creation process, that envisioning, that desiring and and I'm beginning to make the connections now. Thank you. You're very welcome and deserving. And I appreciate the call. I will mute you so you can listen to the rest of this hour. We've got about Fifteen minutes left, fourteen minutes left. We can use that up with comments or questions, or we can start the second hour a little early since Michael and Jeannie are not going to be here live. So feel free to use this time as you so desire. Five six three nine 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 three five eight one. And as I say that, I think I forgot to mention today that if you have a comment or a question and you don't want to go live or you're not listening to this live, you're on an email or on the podcast, you can send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at yagain.org w-h-y A-G-A-I-N.org. And if we get those emails from you, we will do our best to address the comments or questions or answers you have on the Internet show. And then, as time allows, send you a notice about what day and time we talked about your comment or question. And then you can listen back through the archives for the feedback. So 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1, we can have a conversation. The uh, The essay I was going to read today to my eye and ear is relatively short and it fits right with what we're talking about. So if nobody puts a hand up, I will just read that. It is essay number 36 from Christian Sundberg's book, A Walk in the Physical. And the title of it is The Gold Mine of Your Experience. And it reads, your experience is what it is for a reason. You cannot escape the nature of your experience because what you are experiencing is always exactly 
an accurate experience in any given moment based on the many natural laws that source, capital S, source, God, light, love, source in its incredibly loving wisdom has laid out. Thus the nature of your experience itself contains precious keys to your own development and your own life. Now here, when they say experience, they're clearly talking about the way events unfold in your life. Whether you develop a disease, whether or not somebody rams into your car when you're sitting at a stoplight, these experiences, whether a storm blows through town and you know, knocks a tree over onto your house, that's what they're talking about in terms of experience. When I talk about experience, I'm talking about my internal, the internal impact that I generate by how I choose to interpret and then respond to these outside events. So in this essay where it says your experience, I would say the outside events in my life happen that way for a reason. I cannot escape these outside events because I'm experiencing them exactly as my source energy, God, light, love, wants them, needs them to unfold in its incredibly loving wisdom. Thus, the nature of the outside events in my life contain precious keys to my own development in my life. And the essay goes on and says, this includes, quote, negative, close quotes, negative experience, which actually contains rich messages for us if we're willing to listen. Now, willing to listen, able to hear, able to see, this is what I was talking about on the download from Friday. I intend at this point in time, instead of praying for the highest and best to unfold for myself or somebody else, I will begin praying for the ability to see how that however life unfolds is already for my highest and best, for the highest and best of creation itself. So this includes negative experience, which actually contains rich messages for us if we're willing to, to listen or if we're able to see them. The last paragraph in this short essay says, in order to properly excavate the gold mine of your experience, you need to surrender to it. Surrender to your experience itself rather than to your ideas about it. So surrender to the outside events in your life would be the way I would talk about it rather than the preconceived notion that if this or that happens, it's negative. The essay goes on and says, you have been, you have to be willing to actually feel whatever arises in you to fully dwell in the present moment with whatever it is presently offering you. And to do so, they say, without any intellectual judgment whatsoever. I say, in total allowance and surrender. And then the essay concludes with, the more you do that, the more you will be able to see the contents of your intellectual mind 
and the resultant emotions and see them for what they truly are. They are the result of the interpretations you've chosen and placed on the flow of life. They aren't the actuality of life. They aren't the true meaning of life. They aren't any fabulous wisdom that you possess that nobody else does. The wisdom of life is in life itself, in creation itself. It's unfolding. This is brings me back to Michael Singer's extensive talk about if you go back and look at the Big Bang, and our scientists today tell us that the best they can estimate is the Big Bang happened, matter came into existence 13.84 billion years ago. And ever since then, dust clouds have expanded and gravity in dust clouds has brought them together with such force that they've created suns and explosions of suns and, and that every element, every molecule, every atom that you see or feel or experience in your life today, whether it's in your body or in the building that you're in or in the people that are walking next to you, came from a process that began unfolding 13.84 billion years ago and everything that's happened had to happen the way it did for you to be here, for the people around you to be here, for the desk you're sitting in, for the chair you're riding or sitting in or the car you're riding in for them to be there. And so for you, with your conscious, logical mind, your little nine-bit mind, as Michael Rice would call it, for you to say the way life is unfolding is bad or wrong is extreme hubris, unweaning arrogance. So why not experiment with asking to be shown how whatever's unfolding is already for your highest and best, is already for the highest and best of everyone and everything. It's just a suggestion. It's something you might choose to step into. Um, Nobody else has a hand up, so I'm going to take the last five minutes and start uh, Michael and Jeannie's uh, recording early. I will remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. And this is your second hour, Empowered to Heal, Part 1. Tonight in uh, in our topic, Empowered to Heal, we want to look at the question, what is health, and, and what is the cause of health? If you look at the traditional approach in the world what you'll find is that in order to find health our billions of dollars are usually spent researching disease and we're going to look at the idea that that just might be a backward approach and that maybe health is about something else than an absence of disease and and what is its definition what is health really and the best definition i've been able to come up with for health is not that health is an absence of symptoms or pain, but that rather health is living in our natural condition. 
living as the being that we are. Now, if you look at the most ancient teachings, the most ancient teachings tell us that we're made of the stuff called love. And the best definition I've found for health is that health is a state of conscious, active, present love in the human organism. And when we don't have that, we're in a dis-ease state. Disease is not something out there that invades us from the outside and takes us over. Break the word down, it's dis-ease, a lack of ease. And when as human beings, we don't have the condition of love in our minds, in our emotions, and in our physiology, we are literally in a dis-ease state. And that creates a disturbed physiology that leads to what we call organic disease. You know, if you look into um, most of the schools of healing, they've recognized the thing that they call the second year syndrome. And the second year syndrome is what happens in schools of psychology and different schools of healing where the people studying diseases develop the diseases they're studying. A statistically significant number of specialists die of their specialty. Heart specialists die of heart disease. Cancer specialists die of cancer. Why? Well, in the, in the workshops that we've done in the previous evenings, we've posited the theory that you and I, we are creative beings. If we are creative beings, how is it that we create? Well, science doesn't particularly talk about that, but if you go back to the ancient Aramaic language, in the opening words in the book of John, where we're told it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh, it doesn't say that in Aramaic. What it says in the ancient Aramaic is that in the beginning was the mind energy and the mind energy became flesh. We were told how it was that we create what happens in our lives. And if we have an intense focus on the vibration, on the energy of disease, what it is it that becomes organized? What is it that falls into place in our organic structure? And I'd offer that with an intense focus on disease, we tend to develop diseases. Now, if you look at those who would purvey the, the things that suppress the symptoms of disease, you'll notice that wherever they're advertised, generally speaking, the first thing that's done is an intense emotional focus on the disease process. Why is that? Does somebody know what they're doing? I mean, think about it. You see the child suffering and the, the worried parent, and, and you're drawn into that picture. With what? An intense focus on the disease process, and then pops in the solution. Well, we're going to take a different perspective than that, and we're going to look at how it is that we as human beings create and how we move into the state where we are empowered to heal. That each of us carries with us an energy and a capacity. And that energy and that capacity can make of us disease producers or producers of healing. And it depends how we take charge of our own mind energy system. Again, look at those words. In the beginning was the mind energy. 
and the mind energy became flesh. Now, if you listen to Einstein, we've quoted this several times, but let's do it again. Einstein says this, on such things as matter, we have been all wrong. Okay? Where does matter fit? Here. It fits on this side of the equation. On such things as matter, says Einstein, we have been all wrong. What we have heretofore called matter is energy. Energy whose vibrations have become so lowered as to be perceptible to the senses. There is no matter. Einstein's telling us matter doesn't exist. And you'd almost think he was reading from the book of John, wouldn't you? In Aramaic. Now he didn't put the factor of mind in there. But if you look at what organizes, what becomes organized is the mind energy that we engage in. It's our creative capacity. And you look back into the most ancient and the Old Testament teachings and you hear the Creator saying to human beings, of the works of my hands command ye me. What would we call everything on the right side of this equation? Would we say this, these are the works of the hands of the Creator? Then what is it that sets things in motion from the left side of the equation? Well, according to that statement, it says your command is what tells the Creator what to do. Oh, Michael, that's blasphemy. Well, blasphemy or not, hey, I'm just reporting the news. Go read the book. <laughs> That's what it says. Of the works of my hands, command ye me. The Creator saying, tell me what you want, folks. I'm on the inside. I'm making the whole system work. But I'm going to make the system work according to the way you want it to work. Now, if you want to take the time to study how the system works, you'll figure out that you're the one who's telling me what to do. And if you don't want to take the time to figure out how the system works, then you'll think that you're a victim of something out there, some bug that caused the disease. And there are no bugs that cause diseases. There are no bacteria, there are no viruses that cause diseases. Yes, they are a corollary of disease. They're there when the disease process happens. But that's because the decay of tissue gives rise to a cleanup crew. It is not because the cleanup crew causes the disease process. Now we have this energy system. When you start to look at, and, and why is it sometimes a difficult process to arrive at this place of healing, to arrive at this place of understanding? to arrive at the place where we are, we are empowered to heal in every area of our lives. Well, if you look at this human system, what has been organized, if it's true that what has been organized is mind energy, there's a pretty massive accumulation there. In order to show up as this complex a system, it's a pretty massive setup. And when you look at the amount of mind energy that's been put into the system that doesn't belong in the system and how habituated it is, how habitual it's become to stay focused in the disintegrative mind energy patterns, 
Now, if you go to the Aramaic language in the Lord's Prayer where it says, forgive us our debts, that word debts can be properly translated habits. Get us out of our habit mind. You see, one of the keys to healing is you've got to be out of your mind. That's one of the keys to the process. That you've got to be out of the state where you're stuck in the past. Because the mind energy of the past doesn't leave us available to the present moment. And if we're not available to the present moment, it's difficult to engage in the condition of love that is available continuously for each of us. Now, if you go back again to the ancient teachings, they tell us that we have two different bodies. We have a physical body and a spiritual body. Now, when you look at that, you'll, you start to recognize that everything that's in the so-called physical body, or what was called the temple, is an energy that's come from the mind energy of the past. By the fact that it's solidified into form, it is already in the system. And this so-called physical, its name was Adam. Adamos means red clay. So we have this system that's made of red clay, and the red clay stores memory. And then, what it has stored as memory, when it makes a reappearance in our minds, our minds pretend, or so it would seem, that what's coming from our past is actually the present. And if we as creative beings get locked in that past, past and keep producing it over and over and over again, then we'll be stuck in that syndrome of, why is this happening to me again? Now, when I say everything from the human mind, from the atom mind, and you'll remember the ancient teachings talked about the fact that we have two minds. That we have the ability to be in Adam's mind, or be what was called being a son of Adam, or we have the ability to be in the Creator's mind. You'll remember Paul said the goal of the work was to be of like mind with Christ. In other words, to engage another mind. If we continuously engage the mind of the past, then we're going to keep reproducing in our creative process the past. And you've got to start to deal with present time bypassing what's gone in the past if you're actually going to heal what's in your system from the past. Now that may seem like, gee, Michael, I've, I've always been taught to experience life through my mind. How else can you do it? Well, that's one of the problems. That's what we've always been taught. And one of the keys is to be able to step back from your mind and observe it in operation. To kind of become the thinker apart from the thought. The feeler apart from your own feelings. So I'm going to invite you for a moment to do that if you would. I'm going to ask you to step back from your mind for a moment. And as you do, just watch what happens in your mind. Observe it and catch it at its game. How about if you would, putting your right hand on your right ear. Would everybody do that? Put your right hand on your right ear. Now... You'll notice if you look around the room that everybody's doing pretty much the same thing. All right, put your hands down. Now, why did everybody do the same thing? Well, obviously, Michael, you told us to. I've got a different theory. I don't think that's why you did what you just did. 
I think that you, like I, had a mother who taught you, this is a hand, this is an ear. And when I spoke those words, I resonated a reality from your past, stored in your Adam mind. And when I resonated that reality, it came forward and gave you a set of instructions, instructions pardon me, and you followed those instructions. Let's imagine, for example's sake, that, um, that Jerry has a different past than everybody else in the room. Let's imagine that Jerry's mother taught him this is an ear instead of this. When I said put your right hand on your right ear, what did Jerry do? Did he do this like everybody else? No, he did this. Why did he do something different? I mean, we're all in the same room at the same time. I gave the same instructions to everybody. Why did he do one thing and you do another? Because the instructions that came from his mind, from his past, resonated by my words in the present, were different from the instructions that came from your mind and your past. So did you actually follow my instructions? Or did you follow the instructions that were in your Adam mind that came from your past? Two totally different behaviors based upon what was in past. Now, it can be difficult to catch the mind at its game at first, at its trap. And so, building a time delay in can help to make it easier to catch the mind at its game. So I'm going to ask you once again to step back from your mind and observe it in operation. And as you step back and observe it in operation, this time instead of putting your right hand on your right ear, would everyone please put your right hand on your gizzard? Would everybody do that? Put your right hand on your gizzard? Now, notice what just happened in your mind. And unless I miss my guess, it probably went something like this. Gizzards. Let's see. Chickens have a gizzard and they're up here. Or are they down here? And do I have one or just chickens? Kind of how it went? <laughs> notice you went searching through your past to find a reality for the present. Now, if in every experience of your life, you have to look through your past to find a reality for the present, where do you live? You live in the past. Those who lived in the past were said to be the dead, who were buried by the dead. If we don't know how to step out of our past, if we don't know how to step out of Adam's mind and bypass what has already gone before us, we cannot be open to fresh creation. And as creative beings, that's what our capacity is, to engage in original creation. And when we engage in original creation, we must, of necessity, engage in it out of our created being, which is love. Now, there's a big argument going on on the planet, creation versus evolution. And, and that's a really important argument if, if you think you're a body. Because, of course, whether your body came from apes or not might be important. But when you realize that you are not a body, it's an irrelevant discussion. There is a created essence called a soul in Aramaic, nafsha. And then there's a physiological component, or what was called the atom body. If you go back and you, you read the creation story, and, and, and I want to really make it clear that when I approach this whole process from the Aramaic, I'm not looking to delve into religious principles. 
I'm looking to, to the Aramaic, which is a physics language, the Aramaic, which is the native language, not only of Jesus, but of five of the world's major religions. There's a reason for that. And I think the reason is because each of those religions started out of a physics language that knew how the world worked. And then usually men took over and made it how men wanted it to work and used it to control others. But in the original essence, there was a story about, here's how life works, folks. So let's look at the creation story. You'll notice in, in uh, Genesis, the Western creation story, there are two stories about the creating of human beings. Have you ever looked at that? The first one says, in the image and likeness of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Period. End of story. The human being is created. Now, I've heard some preachers stretch a long way to make sense of this because just a couple of lines later it says, there was no man to till the soil. And they start another creation story. It's like, was Moses getting senile here or what? No, I don't think so. I think that it was known exactly what was being said. There was no man to till the soil was saying there was no physiological component. There had not yet been the solidification that we call matter. The creation of the human being had occurred. We are created essence love, a spirit being made in the image and likeness of a spirit being called God, a spirit being called love. And if you go forward to John, it says that the creator God is love. And we're made in the image and likeness of that. So here is our essence created of love. Now I've asked this question of you before and I'll ask it again because it's such an important question. How many can remember coming into a world and looking around at the world of strife and conflict and fight and negativity and looking through small eyes that said, that's not the way the world's supposed to work. It's supposed to be different than that. How many remember knowing? Most everybody remembers. And because we're doing this on camera, I won't go to the audience, but every time I ask this question, the same reply comes. It's some variation on the theme of love. Why? Because you and I are made of the stuff called love. We come into this life knowing what we're made of, knowing what we're here to express, and then the world goes about tearing us out of it, and we tend to buy in. So let's look at the second creation story, the soul. Love is created. And then the second aspect says there was no man to till the soil, no physiological component. And then it goes about developing the evolution story. And then Adam is now present. And then the final statement marries the two. Adam is created. And the final statement there says what? And God breathed into Adamos, Nafsha. So the created spiritual essence love is now breathed into this evolved physiological system. God breathed Nafsha into Adamos and, and Nafsha became a living or an incarnated being. Now, imagine this physiological system that's evolved through this strife-filled world, through this conflict world, and it has lots of protect mechanism and knows all about survival. Survival is its game. And imagine 
this soul being breathed in and saying, Hi, I'm your new landlord. And Adam's saying, Adamo's saying, well, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Well, the Creator breathed me in here and said, I'm in charge now. You see, you're just a set of programs. You run on a pre-programmed survival mechanism. And now, I've got choice. I've got something new in the creation. Something showing up now that's never been before. And you'll notice if you look through all of the creation, you don't find one creature that goes against what it's programmed or structured to do. I mean, you won't find two robins in the spring that come back to Omaha and land in your backyard, look at each other and say, isn't it great to be back in this beautiful backyard? But there, you know, we've been coming here for five years and every year we build a robin's nest. I think this year we should build an Oreo model. You, you won't find a robin doing that. The robin can't do elsewise but to build a robin's nest. You won't find a salmon in the South Pacific swimming along in those nice warm waters that all of a sudden gets the call and says, say, say what? You want me to do what? Let me get this clear. You want me to leave these nice warm South Pacific waters? You want me to swim 3,000 miles back to that icy cold stream that I was spawned in? You want me to swim upstream, get half beat to death on the rocks, lay eggs and die? You're crazy. I'm not going. You won't find a salmon that does that. The salmon gets the call, it finds the very pool in which it was spawned and does exactly what it's structured for. And so it is with Adamos. The physiology. It was an interesting piece of research that was done by a, a psychologist and several years ago. And actually, I don't know whether the, uh, the research is as interesting as the fact that he, he got something like $9 million from the government to do this research, if I remember the numbers correctly, and I may be off there, but a, a significant sum of money. And he wanted to research a thing called a sand flea. And what they had observed with these sand fleas, okay, a sand flea is a creature that... that digs a hole in the sand and, and the interesting thing about it is that whenever it wants to eat the sand flea goes and finds food brings it back sits it at the edge of its hole goes back in the hole and does whatever sand fleas do when they do that it comes back out gets the food and eats well the psychologist decided that when the sand flea went back inside of its hole to do whatever it does He'd remove the food. And so he did. And the sand flea comes out and there's no food there. So it goes off and it gets more food. And it comes back, sets it at the edge of its hole, goes inside, does whatever they do. The researcher took the food. The sand flea came back out, the food was gone. The sand flea goes and gets more food, comes back, sets it at the edge of its hole, goes inside. The researcher removed the food. The sand flea comes back out. The f you get the story? You know how long the sand flea went and did that routine? Until it starved to death. It doesn't. This physiological system doesn't have the capacity to change its own mind. Adam can't change. Can't change itself. You know, there, there are countries in which monkey meat in the past has been a delicacy. And the way they would trap monkeys is they'd take a coconut, they'd cut a small hole in the coconut, just big enough for a monkey to squeeze its hand in. They'd empty out the coconut meat, they'd put food in it that would attract a monkey, and attach it to a tree. 
The monkey would come along, be attracted to food, stick its hand inside, get a handful of food, and now it can't get its hand out. And it's trapped. And it isn't bright enough to let go. The monkey body, monkey mind, the atom mind, can't let go. It can just run whatever's in it over and over and over and over again. And so, look at this creation story and see that our Adamo system has a memory bank filled with everything from its past. And it's programmed for survival. It knows how to survive. So let's imagine the objection that this Adam mind puts up to Naksha in saying, Look, what, what do you know about life? What do you know about survival? I know how to keep us alive. Before I turn this system over to you, just because you've got choice, so what? Before I turn it over to you, I'm going to give you a test. There are two berry bushes over there. If we eat the berries off of one of those bushes, it will kill us. If we eat the berries off the other one, it will nourish us. Do you know which berries to eat? What do you mean, kill us? What are you talking about, says Nafsha. Doesn't know anything about death. And the ego mind, or atom mind, explains death. Oh, gee, I didn't know anything about that. Well, I'll tell you what, maybe when it comes to choosing food, you better, you better take care of it, because I don't know. Well, let me give you another test. There's, there's a, a huge Tronosaurus Rex down the road there. If we get upwind from it, and it gets a whiff of us, do you know how to escape? Escape? Why would I want to escape? What do you mean? Well, hey, we're in big trouble. If he catches up with us, we're dead. Oh, gee, I, I don't have a clue. I don't know. Oh, so you really don't know much about survival, do you? Well, I guess I don't know. Well, then maybe you shouldn't be in charge of this system. Hmm, maybe you're right. Tell you what, how about if we're in a survival situation, you run the show, Adam, and when we're not, my choice, I'll run the show. And so you can almost imagine this negotiated settlement. Now, how does this relate to you and I? Well, let's look at how it works in our lives. A situation that I think all of you will probably be able to identify with. Let's imagine that and I'm going to assume, seeing as how you're watching this tape and you're at this workshop, that at some point in your life you decided that life was about love, that, that you wanted to go back to that original created condition and express life that way. And you'll notice that, especially in your closest relationships, you were fully able to do that, right? Until that person you're in relationship with gave you the look. <laughs> and what happened to your choice? How do they determine what's a survival situation? Well, we could easily imagine that this negotiation that took place between Nafsha and Adam resulted in, well, let's invent an emotional meter. And the meter goes from 1 to 10. Anything above a 7 is survival. As long as the meter's below 7, you've got choice. It's up to you. Do whatever you want. But if something comes along that resonates that emotional meter and it goes beyond seven, choice is over and you're going right back to the old programs. You're going to run life just the way your past has structured you to run life. And if hate and fear and intimidation and gossip and slander and vengeance have been what's in your past, your monkey body, your monkey mind can't let go. It doesn't know how to change itself. But you, Nasha, when you wake up, remember the creation story 
One of the first things that happens to Adam after the creation, it says, he fell into a deep sleep. You notice there's nowhere that it mentions him waking up. <laughs> Why? Is it because most of us as created spiritual beings, as love, have fallen asleep in that reality structure that comes from our Adam bodies? And that whatever seeming decisions it makes, and its decisions are just repeated programs. They just run. In any circumstance that looks like a past circumstance, the program runs. Whether it's appropriate or not. Gee, I want to create love and support nurturing my relationship, but if somebody gives me the look, well, gee, when I was three years old, that meant this 280-pound Hulk was going to come down and beat me with the belt. So now here I am, 40 years later, in a relationship with someone I love dearly, and they turn their head just the right way to resonate that old reality. What happens? Choice is gone. This is survival. And though now I'm dealing with the person that I love and not a 280-pound hulk with a belt in his hand, what do I do? If I haven't forgiven, if I haven't removed that energy from my past, I'm going to play it out. And after I play it out, I'm going to say, oh, God, why did I do that? That's not what I wanted to do. That's not my choice. Anybody ever done that? Done anything against your own will and choice? Do you see why it happens? It's because when the emotion meter hits seven, you don't have choice. You're going to run on automatic pilot. But where your choice lies in the healing process, and, and each of the tools, people will say to me oftentimes, well, Michael, how do I heal this situation? How do I heal this? How do I heal that? All of the above. That's all we ever talk about. Every tool we teach in this work is about how you remove the realities from the mind that don't belong there so that this emotional meter doesn't hit seven. And you don't fall into survival where there's no survival issue involved. And so to wake up to who we really are and to take charge of this system and make real choices and remove from it that which does not belong in it is one of the keys to being empowered to heal. It's one of the ways that we wake up to who we are. So health, I would offer, is a state where we embody in our minds conscious, active, present love continuously. And when there is something less than love, we remove it. We take it out of the system. And we step back into who we really are as created spiritual essence as love. And when we're able to presence love in our minds, whatever of those old realities that come forward that no longer serve us, those survival realities, by the simple exposure to love, by the capacity to hold love, conscious, active, and present, when one of those old emotional meter issues comes forward, it literally creates a transmutation of energy, which tomorrow, if we same, face the same circumstance that today locked us into an old behavior we'd rather not do, by having exposed that old behavior to love, it changes it, it diffuses the energy. It's called the process of forgiveness. Forgiveness in the ancient Aramaic language means a tool for changing a reality in your mind. So if there is a reaction, you know, break that word down, react. How did you react to that situation? In other words, how did you do an act that you'd been taught to do on a previous occasion? 
And that's all the atom mind's capable of. But as spiritual beings, we're capable of more than that. We are actors. And we are capable of engaging in original creation. Of bringing into every circumstance in our lives the being that we are, the love that we are. And the ancient Aramaic is, for me, has been the closest that I've been able to find to describing that process and what it's about. And once you start to study the framework and the culture of the Aramaic in its true original form, and, and, and you will find things from the Aramaic that even those things are not on target when it comes to the teachings of Jesus. Why? Well, go back and you hear Jesus saying, even to the people of the day in Aramaic, you know, the, there are many things I would like to say to you, but you can't hear them yet. We've got to be able to deepen our experience to match the experience that was being talked about in that language to be able to comprehend it. Elsewise, a higher teaching has to be reduced in its level of understanding to the level that the person interpreting the teaching has reached. You can't be at a level 7 and understand a, a teaching at level 10. It just doesn't happen. And so, to deepen your own process, to take charge of your own energy system and deepen the experience of being love, as you look at that teaching in Aramaic, you'll come more and more to comprehend what it spoke of in real human terms. And it loses its religious significance. And it takes on, for me, something much greater. It takes on the significance of life process. It wasn't about some intellectual process or ceremony called religion. It was about, here's how life works, folks. The Aramaic language was spoken for right from the Middle East to the Great Wall of China for a thousand years before the birth of the man named Jesus and a thousand years afterward. It was the language of each and every one of the Old Testament prophets. It was the language of Baha'u'llah. It was the language of Zoroaster. It was the language of uh, the Old Testament scholars. Five of the world's major religions. Why did they stay around? because of their level of understanding. Why is it that we want to go back to those, that language and that culture to gather an understanding? Well, let's use an example. Let's imagine that we go to the jungles of South America and we follow a fellow who has done a five-day trek and he's 20 miles from his home. He's farther from his home than he's ever been. And he lives a jungle existence within his culture. He has never been out of those huge jungles in South America, and he's never experienced anything like modern civilization. Now let's imagine being 20 miles from home, all of a sudden he hears this roaring noise. And he goes to the edge of the jungle to inspect and he sees this huge yellow animal with round legs running back and forth in the jungle, just knocking down trees left, right, and center. And then he watches another huge animal come along and lay down this black surface 
over everything where the trees have been knocked down. And I mean, over a, days, a period of days and weeks, he just watches from the edge of the jungle in amazement as this happens. And then all of a sudden, one day, he hears this roaring noise in the sky. And he looks up and he sees this huge bird, bigger than any bird he ever could have imagined. And imagine this bird lands, and it's an unusual bird in that it opens its mouth, which is on the side instead of the front, like every other bird he's ever seen, and it spits out live people. I mean, this is some kind of bird, eh? And then it eats more people and takes off again with a roar. Now, of course, you and I know what he's just observed, don't we? But let's imagine now that our friend, having observed an airplane, goes back 20 miles in the jungle to explain to the rest of the tribe what he's just seen. Can he speak one true word about what he's observed? I mean, let's think about it. He saw this huge bird that was shiny like the sun. It had no feathers. Its skin was as hard as rocks. Its eyes were huge. Its mouth was on the... Can he say anything true about what he's observed? Not possible, is it? What is he going to have to do to enable him to speak to those 20 miles deep in the jungle about what he's experienced with an airplane? Well, he's going to have to come into and build the brain cells for what an airplane is and what modern transportation is. In the ancient Aramaic, that was called having the eyes to see and the ears to hear. So he's going to have to develop the eyes to see and the ears to hear what that's about. So let's imagine that he stays with these people. They meet him, they befriend him, they teach him the language, and now he understands about international travel. Can he go back into the jungle and explain to his friends 20 miles deep in the jungle what he's experienced? Can he say one true word about what he's experienced? No. They don't have, they've never been out of the jungle. International travel, what are you talking about? Airplane? Well, what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to build the brain cells. They're going to have to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear what's being spoken of. And so the first step is that they're going to have to develop the brain cells. Remember Jesus said his teachings were only for those who had the eyes to see and the ears to hear? Now, there are things that you can say in the Aramaic language and culture that you cannot say in the westernized versions of those scriptures because most of the westernized versions come from Greek. I've actually had preachers. I remember one man who had been a fundamental preacher for a little better than a half a century. And when I started to talk to him about the Aramaic, he literally, and I quote, said to me, I don't care what Jesus said. I was just aghast. I couldn't believe what I heard. And his explanation was, I studied the Greek and I know all about the Greek text. And that's enough for me. Well, that would be like our jungle friend going back into the jungle knowing nothing about the language of international travel and explaining to his friends what he just experienced and trying to make a logical sense of it. You ever looked at a lot of the scriptures and it's like, how does this make sense? Where is this coming from? Well, that's why. 
Because there are things you can't say in Greek that are said in Aramaic. Why? Well, if you look at the whole Greek, and, and let's look at the difference in the, the philosophy and the understanding of the Western mind that produces a, uh, an airplane and international travel and the jungle inhabitant who hasn't been outside of the jungle or a 20-mile radius. There are no words, there are no concepts that can be communicated effectively between those two worlds until the brain cells are built to make sense of it. Well, in precisely the same fashion, if you can see the dichotomy there, let's look at the ancient Aramaic where you have a man named Jesus who says things like, the Father within me does the work. It is the Father's good pleasure to bring you the kingdom. And if you ask, you will receive. Now, let's just take that part of it. And then, let's see if you can say those things in a Greek conceptual framework that knows nothing of internalized God, but rather has this whole external pantheon. These creatures that kill their mothers, rape their daughters, do all sorts of horrid things. They're called gods in that Greek philosophy, right? In the Greek mythology. And the powers are all externalized. Now Jesus talks about a process of forgiveness which is a way that you reach into your own mind to remove the realities from your mind that are your disease and then you go to the Greek language which has externalized all the powers and instead of forgiving, you start pardoning. Instead of a power within, it becomes some horrified power out there that's out to get us. Look at the whole base of understanding and now look at the Western mind and how many are still looking for some God out there that's going to get them and some afterlife out there. And the name of a man who in Aramaic said, hey, if somebody tells you the kingdom of God's over there or over there, or over, don't believe him, it's within you. You can't make sense of it in Greek. It's not until you go back to that Aramaic structure that the whole energy system starts to make sense. For me, when I first contacted the Aramaic, it was so exciting to me because my background was in electronics and physics. And what I immediately saw was this is a physics language. This language describes how life works. This language describes how this physiological system works. Ah, mind energy organizes this world of flesh. This makes sense. And all of a sudden, when you go to that framework, the whole thing starts to fall into place. And it is built to liberate people. You go back and listen to Jesus. He says, know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now let's look at what is generally referred to in our culture as the beloved King James Version of the Bible. You know, if you went back and talked to the Founding Fathers, the Founding Fathers would not touch that book because it was government issue, it came from the king. The previous versions of the Bible did not support the divine right of kings. James said, I want the divine right of kings in there. And he went about having a translation done. Now, let's look at the structure in England at the time when James had that book written. The way the culture was organized was sort of on a pyramid level. You know, pyramid schemes in our culture are illegal, right? 
Why? Because it turns over everything from the bottom levels to those at the top and the people on the bottom end up losers. So you look at that structure and you had a, a group of people who were literally chattels. They were owned by the property owners. The whole base of the pyramid in that culture were people who, if the overlord sold his lands... Everybody breathing, by the way? If the overlord sold his land, the people went with it. They were owned. They were property. Now, you don't have to look very deeply to see... You know, you just look at the word that was used to describe them. What were they called? Peons, right? <laughs> and what happened? They produced on the land, they worked the land, they sometimes were able to keep enough to eat, and they turned over the results of their produce to the next layer, to the overlords, to those above them, who of course were fewer in number, but they basically owned the property and owned the people that worked the property. And of course, that next layer, that next level, had to turn over what they produced, a certain percentage. They got enough to keep them alive, a little more than the peons, and they went to the next level, and it went up to the next level. And who sat at the top? The king. Now, how many believe, how many are naive enough to believe that this guy wants to accurately represent the teachings of a man who said, know the truth and the truth will set you free? Not very likely. And so when we start to go back into the actual original teachings of Jesus in his native Aramaic, in his native tongue, we'll start to see that he was about liberating people and teaching them of their creatorship. And that what he was teaching them was how to remove the dis-ease processes that they had engaged in. He taught them how to forgive every reality that was not in their minds. And so healing is not about fixing a broken part of the system. If we put into this system an energy, look at this thing as an energy system, and we put into it an energy that does not belong in it, wherever we store that energy, we set up a dis-ease process. The process of healing is not the process of suppressing the symptoms that reflect in the organized state, in the organic structure, but rather the process of healing results from removing what does not belong in this system. Removing the overlays that we've put in it that block its original intelligence, its original capability, and its natural state of health. So if we're ready to look at the, the problem, we get to see what's really going on. Now I'd like to move from the ancient physics language of Aramaic into some modern writing, and I'm going to read some work from a man named Fred Allen Wolf. Fred Allen Wolf is a physicist. He's a former professor of physics at the University of Paris and at San Diego State. 
And here's what he says. He says the only mystery, let's look, let's look at the world from a, and, and look at physiology now from a physicist's point of view. The only mystery of quantum physics lies in the wave-particle duality described by Richard Feynman, a Nobel Prize winning physicist. He says that atomic objects, electrons, protons, neutrons, etc., sometimes behave like particles and at other times behave like waves. In other words, what do we have? We have a state where this thing we call matter is spread out over space as a wave or it collapses and becomes a particle. So he says, atomic objects, electrons, protons, neutrons, etc., sometimes behave like particles and at other times like waves. When does an atomic object behave like a particle and when like a wave? According to many quantum physicists, the answer depends on whether or not the object is observed. Key. What is observation? The action of simple observation causes the wave to collapse, producing a particle. Nobel laureates Eugene Wigner, Brian Josephson, Josephson pardon me, and many other physicists believe that this action of consciousness is a fundamental event beyond physics. Fred Allen Wolf goes on to say, we view it as the action of consciousness. Without such actions, the world and all of its participants would remain wispy, ghost-like quantum waves and there would be nothing physical at all. Now, what is this thing we call the observer? Well, when you recognize we live in an energy universe, let's, let's do something here with color that will kind of demonstrate what we're talking about. Let's imagine that we have a blue potential. Let's imagine that we have a wave that is a red potential. We have a green potential. We have a purple potential. Now, let's imagine that each of these are potentials for solidifying or collapsing and becoming the world of matter. But something has to interact. Something has to add an energy to any one of these for it to collapse and become a particle. So let's imagine now that we have an observer whose mind energy, let's let this blue represent a world of fear. Let's let red represent a world of anger. Let's let green represent a world of healing. And let's let purple represent a world of love and awaken spirituality. If we have a person whose mind energy has been filled with this frequency. Brain cells have been filled to the max with fear and intimidation. And you'll recall the last few nights I've talked about the work I did several years ago with uh, Marcel Vogel, who was a 23-year senior scientist from IBM. Marcel developed the instrumentation in the lab with which to measure the high energy waves that leave the mind when we think a thought. 
So when we put the realities of fear into a mind, we set there an energy. All energy is in motion, and all motion produces an energy wave. So if that's the frequency, if that's the wave that this person, and if you could trap the whole world of people into those brain cells of fear, out of the quantum potential, which wave is going to be in resonance, which through resonance is going to have energy added to it and is going to collapse? We're going to see this collapse out of the quantum soup or the quantum potential and become the world of matter. Now once it has collapsed, imagine you're the observer looking at all these fearful people out here. Do you suppose it's going to do any good to work on trying to get them to change? It's not going to happen you're going to have to go back to where it started. Remember Job in the Old Testament said, that which I feared most has come upon me. What was he saying? He was saying, oh, I see, I'm a creator. When I engaged in fear, I set up an energy wave. I set up a frequency. And here it is, come to visit. Now, instead of trying to get rid of the visitor, I think I should probably go back and forgive. Which means what? I'm going to literally restructure the brain cells. What are we going to restructure them with? Well, if I forgive, and remember that forgiveness means a tool you apply to a reality in your mind to remove that reality, which is a tool that you apply to an energy in your physiology which, if it is fear, is a disease energy in whatever tissue it's in. It violates the integrity of that tissue. So you remove that, you forgive that, and all of a sudden, this wave is no longer the predominant resonant energy in your mind. What's going to tend to happen? This wave that has collapsed will tend to go back to the world of potential, and its solidified nature will disappear. Now let's say that having dealt with the fear, oftentimes the next stage is to get really peeved about what they've done to us, to get really angry. So if the next predominant resonant energy is red, if that's what shows up, having forgiven the anger, all of a sudden now I'm really peeved at what's been going on all this time. This is an energy, this energy sets up a field what now starts to become manifest in the potential world? You know, they, they spoke in the Aramaic of illusion. And usually in our culture, we're taught that illusion means something that doesn't exist. In the Aramaic, the, word, the root of the word illusion is not something that doesn't exist. The root of the word illusion is measured. Remember they said, as you measure, it will be measured unto you? As you put an energy into your mind, guess who's coming to dinner? Guess what's going to show up? You set up a frequency, and out of the quantum soup, out of the potential, what you have measured solidifies, collapses, and becomes your experience. Is anger ever going to get you where you want to go if you want to live a delightful life? If you want to heal, it's not going to happen. 
Now you might have plenty of reasons to be angry. You might have plenty of reasons to be horribly abusive to them. But that's really not the essential question. If you want to heal, the essential question is, though they deserve it, do you? Because you get the original, they just get the carbon copy. And if they're not in resonance, they're not going to play. If you really want to heal, you have to take charge. And you go back and you listen to Jesus and he said, you know, the first order of business, the first law of life, of aliveness, of joy, of creativity, of really high level wellness, is you've got to hold the condition of love in your mind. And when you do that, you'll start to dismantle that energy, that information in brain cells that resonates and sets up lots of things to be angry about. And as you change that frequency from your mind, that potential, or pardon me, that which is solidified, will tend to go back to the world of potential and dissipate. And the next step is you'll start and you'll begin to engage in the healing process. And when that becomes the predominant resonant energy in your mind, you'll set up. And what you'll find is you'll create a world and you will start to attract people and circumstances that will support your healing process. All of a sudden, in the same world where yesterday you find all kinds of reasons to be angry or fearful, all of a sudden you'll look out and you'll literally see different evidence. You'll literally draw different people to you and you'll go... Gee, you mean there's actually support in this world for healing? You mean I don't have to live in rage and fear? And you know, as people extract from that world of rage and fear, sometimes they're very, you know, they may be apart from two, three, four, five years. They're very surprised when they go back to their old haunts and find that rage and fear is still there. I've had that happen many times. People go back and they, they go back to see dear old friends and all of a sudden they find that, gee, there's no resonance left. Dear old friends are dear, but there's just no, re there's no energy exchange. They're just not living in the same world.